And there came a day. A day unlike... Wait. No, that's been done. Hmm. Who knows what evil lurks in... No, that is that other thing. What has yellow skin and rights? Ah, forget it. You're listening to Panelology. Excelsior, oh, damn it. Welcome to episode 257 of Panelology. I'm Alex. And I am Brian. Triumphantly returning. Welcome Whew, back. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. How uh how are you? Uh a little exhausted recovering, but not good on the whole, I suppose. Yeah. Good. Can't complain too much about anything. Very good. Yeah. I uh I know nothing. I know nothing. <laughs> I am I continue to exist in the void. I I am so Jon Snow. <laughs> but without the dog. Or the right. desire to wander around in the frosty wasteland. There you go. Yeah. But with comics. A lot of comics. But I've with comics. on Jon Snow. That's true. I don't think I ever saw Jon Snow with a comic. No. What, what do you think Jon Snow would read? <sighs> what would Jon Snow read? I, I feel like he would like the X-Books. Yeah, well, that's, that's a safe bet. Yeah. Saga, like, I feel like oh, Saga would be very relatable to him. That's uh, that's that's definitely a a potential there. Yes, um, yeah. I I'm not sure Jon Snow would know what to do with sex criminals. Oh no, no, definitely not. Now, Egret, the 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 fire haired uh, Northernlander person, she would probably enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's probably true. All right. But they could both read Hawkeye. They could both read Hawkeye. There you go. You know what? No. The new Black Widow, because the whole tortured tortured self thing, that would be, yeah. Sure. Although that's yeah. arguably every Black Widow. Black Widow might just be Jon Snow's favorite book. <laughs> there you go. Fair enough. Fair enough. A lot of red in that ledger. <laughs> yes. Indeed. All right, let's talk about comics. The Flash, number 768, is up first. This is written by Jeremy Adams, with art by Brandon Peterson, Marco Santucci, and David Lafuente. Colors by Micah Tia, Arif Prianto, and Luis Guerrero. And letters by Steve Wands. What did you think of this, Brian? Um, I, I liked the, the kind of uh, head fake that we got. That was kind of cool. Yeah? Yeah, um... Yeah, they, you know, because they tell us the whole time that, you know, Wally's going to be back and, you know, all the all this. And then, I mean, he kind of is, but now kind of isn't. And yeah, it's I like it. I like it. Yeah, I, uh, so Jeremy Adams did a, a sort of small press tour, at least, you know, a couple of interviews yeah. ahead of this book coming out. And one of the things he has talked about is to say, look, I I know where we're starting from, and I know what Wally has been through, and I promise you this book is not going to be just torturing Wally constantly, like has been the case for the last few years. Yeah, yeah, good. So, this does start acknowledging the whole Heroes in Crisis thing, which... Uh-huh. 
frankly, if this is the last time I have to hear about it, it's worth it. You know what, though? Uh, I can appreciate that the character they chose to pull that in with was was Ollie, right? Yes. I think right. Ollie is a great choice for this book uh, exactly. for a lot of reasons. Exactly. Well, and uh, exactly, for a lot of reasons is right. One, obviously, is the connection and, mo- you know, potentially you could say from a from a DC, you know, character standpoint, most affected, right? Yeah. Um, but also just his personality allows him to have that emotional response to it without it being just without there being some realism and in, injected. Yeah. In yeah. So let's say what it is. And then I actually want to double sure, back sure, to sure, Ollie sure. for a sec. Okay. It in this case is Wally West's decision to not only reject Barry's request that he become the Flash while Barry joins Justice Incarnate, but to give up being the Flash and his connection to the Speed Force. Yes. Barry is against this. Wally makes this request basically in front of the full Justice League. Uh, Green Arrow supports it, making the argument, I think, reasonably, look, if the kid isn't up for it for whatever reason, we're just putting him and other people in more danger. We should listen to it. Right. And that's the thing is, is Ali, his first argument is, look, if he doesn't want to do it, we shouldn't force him to. And then the second half of that is, okay, look what happens when we try to force people to do what they're saying they're not ready for or can't handle. It's it's a yeah. version of Ollie I like that is yes. simultaneously compassionate and pragmatic. Yes, exactly. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about with Ollie being in this book and Ollie being... In the Justice League, and Ollie being in... Have you read the June Solicitations yet, Brian? Nope. Well, Jen and I recorded the June Solicitations episode last week, which you know, but this is me reminding listeners who might not know. Um, Remember the, the Event Leviathan spinoff Checkmate that was yep. announced like two years ago and then yes. never happened? Yep. It's in June Solicitations. Ooh. Uh, with one major adjustment it's now ollie funding checkmate oh that is different and it will tie into justice league obviously bendis is writing both of those but we're seeing ollie show up in multiple places now and it really feels like he's being positioned for a larger role in the dc universe i'm incredibly happy about that yeah i Especially if we get kind of this take on him, which is very consistent with what we saw in Bendis' first Justice League issue. I am super here for it. Uh, So what happens when they try to sever Wally's connection to the Speed Force? Um, Well, I think um, you can basically boil it down to the Speed Force saying no. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Wally gets blown back to the Jurassic Park era. No, not the 90s. Dinosaur times. Right. Uh, and every other Speed Force user loses their connection to the Speed Force. Yes. So, and his is not as strong as it was. It's not, but it also seems like maybe the Speed Force doesn't have control of itself and its energy. Correct. Because he ends up having to run away from Speed Force Velociraptor. Yes. A phrase I can't say without a grin on my face. Right. Um, I mean, is, 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 isn't that kind of re-redundant, too? <laughs> Speed Force Velasa, right? 
It's a Velocity 9 Raptor. Velocity 9 Raptor, there you go. It just uses its little claws to draw the Speed Force formula in the sand. Wow. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but but that, that's not where he ends up at the end of this, is it? No, he ends up in the future, in the bo- the body of Bart Allen. What we what we learn is he is jumping from speedster to speedster throughout time. Correct. Yeah. So, which the idea would be that whoever this caveman person was, he was a speedster. Right? But he's got a little like lightning bolt scar yep. under his eye. This is very like Silver Age, Bronze Age. I feel like it, it, it does have that feel to it. Gotta say. And it works way better for me than that kind of tongue-in-cheek callback style normally works. Yeah, so I want to call out a couple of specific things. One is, oh my god, the art in this. Mm-hmm. I like, so I know they have, what, three different artists on this? Right? Yep. And one is writing essentially what is kind of current day. One is writing Wally in Jurassic Park dinosaur time. And uh, one is writing, uh, I said writing, drawing. Drawing. Uh, uh, Wally in the future. Yeah. For the future. And oh. each each timeline has its own colorist as well. Yes, correct. And all three of them are amazing. Yes. They're all wonderful. And they all fit the, the stylized, stylization of, you know, that past future kind of thing. Like, and, you're, and there are some things very, very much uh, that, are kind of like that Silver Age callback. One of them absolute being that final page, right? Mm-hmm. Where we have, I mean, I don't think it's a big reveal, a Dominator, right? Yeah. That looks like he's, you know, like taking up the entire background of the page, reaching out to grab. Like, it, that is such a 70s image of, of a, like, a, that would be like a comic cover. In the 70s. Yeah, I, yeah, I can absolutely picture that cover with, like, Dark Side. Yeah, sure. Or or for an X-Men book, Apocalypse. Or Sentinel, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And uh, if that doesn't make me happy, if all of this doesn't make me happy enough, who do we get back? Do you remember who shows up on that last page? Oh, right. I told you she was coming back. Yes. Gold Gold Beetle. Beetle. I'm so happy. So happy. Uh, Yeah, I I love everything about this. Yeah, yeah, this was this was a lot of fun, and that's just it. I think that that's really what it is. Is it, it, this feels like just a fun story to read? I think. Yeah, Future State Superman versus Imperious Lex number three. Our last Future State issue. Our last Future State. Yeah, kind of a week or a couple weeks after everything else. Yeah, was, a um, month. Uh, written, yeah, you know, I was trying to be, I was trying to be generous. <laughs> written by Mark. I mean, it was always scheduled this way. It's not right, like it no, was I late know, or I anything. Know. I know. Written by Mark Russell. Art by Steve Pugh. Colors by Romulo Fayardo Jr. And letters by Carlos M. Mangual. Yeah, I, I mean, there's not a lot to say other than just you know, we, we know Mark Russell is just an absolutely brilliant satirist, and yeah, this this does it. Well, I feel like I feel like we should talk about the the star of this issue, the breakout character, X ninety nine. X ninety nine, yeah. Uh, who, poor who, poor X ninety nine. Who has from his own and and this is part of what I love about this is from his own uh, uh, character motivations, 
does what he feels is truly the best thing. He's trying to do good according to, you know, his perspective. His programming, very literally. In this case, right, yeah. Yeah. But ends up performing almost the exact opposite of what his intentions were. Yes. By doing so, yeah. Um, It's just, just wonderful. And it's a, like I said, it, he does such a phenomenal job of intentions versus outcomes, right? Like, the motivations, like, everything is, is in this. Yeah. One thing I'm curious to see, this is maybe more than any other, the future state book that I am unsure how to connect to what is going on in yeah. Infinite Frontier. Yeah. Like, are we going to see Lex Luthor leave the Earth to become God King of his own planet? Is that something that we can we can expect? Well, it, it, it there's a couple of things that that make me um, curious about that that question. One is, you know, at one point in the uh, we had seen Luther go into the future and see where he was like hailed as a hero, right? Right. Was that just him coming to this planet? I think that was supposed to be Earth. Like, I think that was. I think so, too. But, it, like, you know, it raises that question. Sure. Of, yeah. Well, and as you mentioned that, we don't really we don't really know where Lex is right now, do we? Um, no. We saw him at the end of Death Metal, but we have not seen him yet in Correct. Infinite Frontier. Correct. Uh, the, and the second half of that is obviously, you know, um, Lois and Clark are representing the United Planets. And I was going to say, we, we kind of joked Which. about President Lois Lane or whatever right. with issue one, but I feel like she is, I feel like this is almost more a Lois book than a Superman book. I, I would, I, I agree with that. He is a supporting character to her in this. Yeah. And I love that about it. I also think maybe that means we're seeing sort of a direction for Lois. I don't hate that. I would I would absolutely be here for it. I mean, we know she's a part of Checkmate uh in June. But beyond that, like seeing her play more of a role in politics and diplomacy, I'd be I'd be here for that. I I would love to see, you know what could be a really cool thing is if they start to look like they're going to position her as the new Amanda Waller, right? <laughs> that would be cool. But then her being Lois, right? They, you know, kind of at the last minute, they turn it so, yeah, but she's all about truth and exposing things, so she literally opens all of that up to the light and, like, makes it all just public knowledge and known about what's going on there. That, I would I would absolutely be here for that. Right? Yeah. Uh, such a fun book. So many cool ideas here. Yeah. Yeah. Next, we have The Other History of the DC Universe, <gasps> number three. This is written by John Ridley, with layouts by Giuseppe Camancoli, finishes by Andrea Cucci, colors by Jose Villarubia, and letters by Steve Wands. Uh, this issue follows the same structure format as the first two, but is about Katana. It is. And I didn't know that it could be this way. But this one might almost be kind of the rawest of all of them so far. I definitely think that is that is possible. Part of it 
I'm sure, is timing. It is hard to read this book, especially with us both living in Atlanta, right? Uh, It is hard to read this book without thinking about current events around uh, Asian America and Pacific Islander-related hate crimes. Yeah. But... They are brought up numerous times in this, yes. But it is also here to remind us that this is nothing new. While while racism around the way politicians and others talk about COVID have exacerbated these problems, they date back to as long as there has been immigration from Asia and the Pacific Islands to the United States. Yeah. Um, yeah. Here's the thing. I love every one of these books that have come out so far. Uh, I, I, I think that they have all told their stories kind of differently like the tone of each of them has been kind of different mm-hmm. um like I, I i guess i would say kind of the theme has been the same in that you know they're telling their stories and you're experiencing uh like what they're feeling as they go through it but the tone of that is very different i think well i think the key to it is actually in what you just said they're telling their stories right. i think yep. the tone changes because sure Ridley so clearly writes this from each character's voice. And Very each definitely. character's priorities and experiences come through in this. Yes. Um, but yeah, and, and we're not going to walk through each of these, but like her particular background and origin of, you know, her family getting killed and her taking up the sword and literally becoming kind of an emotionless assassin. Right. Yeah, I I like the way she talks about the mythology around yes. her and her sword. Yep. And basically says it's all bullshit. Yeah. But people fear me because of it, so I just let it I let it continue because if I am going to kill it is valuable to me for them to fear me. Yeah. And you get a hint of uh, I don't know if respect is the right word, but um acknowledgement maybe is a good word for it of batman and how he uses fear and intimidation there are there are multiple points throughout the story where directly or not she does sort of draw those comparisons to batman it starts off as direct sure um i think there's one other point where she says you know i i i I admire his ability to see through what is to what people need you know, yeah. something along those lines. Right, right, right. Or, or I appreciate it because it has helped me right. maybe closer to what it actually is on the page. Yes. Um, and then the probably the one that I wasn't expecting, but it makes complete sense for her to talk about, is, um, and through her connection to, to Geoforce, right, to Brian, mm-hmm. is Tara. Yes. And her opinion about that, which was like, wow. I am not sure any other comic I've read that has acknowledged Correct. the, the Deathstroke Terror situation has been as just sort of laser focused on cutting to the core of it. And, and that's just it. Everything, and, it, and that's kind of what I meant about Raw, is uh, maybe Blunt is a better, like, there's just no flowery description of things or trying to use nice words to cover up what she's trying to say she just says it i mean she says outright deathstroke is a pedophile and a rapist yeah and that is true like there is nothing 
false about that statement, and she says it so unambiguously that like you read this and you can't see him the same way. Yeah, yeah. She, I mean, her basically Tara was trafficked. Yeah, it's like oh right, and how you know she is vilified as the betrayer and all this, and like nobody really sees her as the victim, which is what she was. Right. Ouch. One thing, one thing about this series so far that I am, I am curious to see, because clearly John Ridley is sticking around the DC universe. He's writing Batman. Yep. Um, I did not know, JD actually caught this while we were working on show notes last week. Mm -hmm. John Ridley wrote an authority miniseries like 10 years ago. That if you look around, you can still find the hardcover or paperback for online. Uh, I have I have ordered a copy of it. it; has not arrived yet. So this is not this 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 sort of resurgence of Ridley writing DC, DC stuff is not even his first foray into comics writing. Uh, but I am curious if he's sticking around, and I hope he does. He's spent a lot of time so far in this series talking about the Outsiders. Yes. And while I'm I am very excited for the outsiders backup that is happening right now in in Batman Urban Legends. Urban Legends. I'm also sitting here imagining what would a John Ridley black label outsiders look like. Wow. <laughs> that could be real real good. Because uh -huh. our the the next issue of this is is about Renee Montoya. Uh, who doesn't really have a connection there. But the last one is about Jefferson Pierce's daughter, Anissa, who was also at one time on the Outsiders roster. Yes. I don't know. It's, it's just something to think about. Like, here's, there is so much here that I would love to read. Even, even in a more traditional comics form, I would love to read his take on the Outsiders. Even if it's in kind of like a... a spider-man life story sort of right. way you know, like a not a, quite a retrospective but a but sort of like this yeah. set against a timeline letting time pass i think i think there's a lot that he could do with a lot more he could do with these characters beyond this miniseries if he so chooses like let him do whatever he wants but i couldn't i couldn't stop thinking about that after this that what what would he do with this team I guess the other, the only other thing I want to bring up in this before we uh, kind of wrap up is I, I do also like how he has, it seems to me at least, he has kind of chosen the death of Superman as like a point that each of them, uh, kind of the fixed point in each of their stories that you can position all of this around. Yeah, like they all, they Superman or or I think we've also seen their relationship to Kara. Yeah. One or the other in every issue so yeah. far, we've seen as a focal point, which makes a lot of sense, right. I guess, yeah. in the history of, of comics. Um, also, each one of these, we haven't really talked about, each one of these is kind of focused on a different decade. That is true, that you're, and, you're not wrong there. Yeah. And we get those different inflection points sort of as, as a way to ground around those decades. Yeah. Like, this, um, is, this is kind of the, the late 80s to early 90s, yep. and Rene Montoya will be the early 90s to early 2000s. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 particularly what I like about those is how he uses those characters' voices to express different perspectives on those events yeah on those things like here how she talks about how you know there was a 
there's a lot about Superman that is, you know, everyone admires him, but there's a lot that he kind of represents that may not be the best of America. Well, and in, like, contrast to the Jefferson Pierce issue, right? we see, like, he he was not a huge Superman fan for a right. lot of that issue. Yep. So it's it's interesting to see that everyone admires him, and maybe in Jefferson Pierce's case eventually, but, like, not always at the outset even, because right. of what, what Katana says here. Yep, exactly. Anyway. It's I absolutely like this series is kind of like like you just I I just think people need to read this. Yeah, I mean it's it's so carefully crafted and yeah. so intentional in like it's there is not any other comic I read that takes me as long to read because it is largely prose. Yeah, but there is not. Like, a sentence you can cut from this thing without losing something. No, no. I almost wish I could take people that are, like, into, like, comic gates and make them read this series. Yeah, I... Man, I wonder sometimes, like... This is the thing I struggle with, with with folks like that and QAnon supporters and... Anyone who anyone who I think at this point is still holding on to that way of thinking those kind of hate based philosophies. Right. The thing I struggle with is how much like good faith effort is there to look at other opinions. If there's anyone in those spaces out there who like really truly wants to see things differently, yeah. Absolutely. I I I I think there is value in this for anyone looking to actually like try to understand through through narrative, right? Through sure. through a narrative version of history, a fictionalized version of history. I I also though, you know, I don't know that I've got a lot of faith that everyone in those groups is in good faith. No, I, I you know, that is listen. a very valid, very very valid point. And that's um, a little bit. That's just me. That's the thing I struggle with in this historical yeah. moment. So the the obviously the events that are in this, I mean, it's the the DC universe. They're all fictionalized, right? But you absolutely get the feel the the, the idea that the feelings in this are very real. Well, and it yeah. it does it does, and this is kind of I mentioned what would a yeah. version of an outsider's book yep. told in traditional comic storyline, but with historical context, look like part of the reason my brain goes there is because he does tie this to some oh, actual historical real events. real world events. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yeah. There's several like specific news articles of real events that happened that she kind of keys in on, right? Yeah, yeah. And we see that in every every issue of this. And uh, I will, I, I will. One of the things that I. I I think is part of what makes this feel so genuine about all this is like one of the ones that she talks about is a, uh, you know, a, a very valid uh, conflict between African-Americans and Asians that happened in, in in LA. Yeah. And um, it just, like I said, it just feels so the, the, the feelings feel very genuine to me. Yeah, and I think yeah, I think that's the truth of the matter. This is coming, I'm sure, from a very raw, earnest place. Yep, for John Ridley. Yep, and and the whole creative team. I mean, this is a creative oh, team sure, that sure, is sure. you know 
of a variety of backgrounds all contributing to this. All right. All right. Something a little lighter. <laughs> yes. I assume. I don't actually know this. It, I didn't it read this one. absolutely is, yes. Okay, oh, cool. So, yeah. Ruby Justice League, chapters <laughs> one through four. So this is a uh, digital first release. And uh, uh, I... I I'm a huge fan of the first season of Ruby. Um, it, you know, it, uh, like a lot of things, you know, it, it's the first season that captured my my interest and, and my appreciation. Um, so let's say hypothetically, just very yeah. quickly, there's someone out there. Maybe uh, let's imagine this person, your co-host, okay. who doesn't know what Ruby is, despite ah. multiple friends recommending it. Okay. So Ruby is essentially, it is a world um, where uh, there are certain, there's kind of essentially four main continents, right? And they each have kind of a different theme as far as, you know, what they kind of stand for. Like there's one who is the the, the business technology, you know, uh, continent, right? Uh, and each of them have these academies where they train what are called hunters. Uh, to use their skills to fight back the grim, which are the the essentially the shah or the bad feelings that manifest themselves as evil creatures. Gotcha. Um, and obviously, uh, we focus on one academy called Beacon Academy, uh, which is uh, in kind of the central uh, uh, continent, and very specifically, it's called Team Ruby R W B Y because. Uh, the teams are named after the the people that are in it, and then we have Ruby and uh, Vaishni and Blake, Belladonna, and Yang, which is uh, uh, Ruby's sister. Gotcha. Um, and that's that's their team, and so it's Team Ruby, right? Um, and you know they each have different skills, and you know think of it like a teen kind of uh, training force you know like a champions or a teen titans or that kind of thing right yeah uh and of course they have other characters who are you know other students there at the academy that come into the story and all of this um but essentially they start finding out some things that uh you know some of the uh upper staff at the academy and some of the politicians in other areas uh you know are keeping from them or are uh not being truthful to the to the public about right about the grim and how they work and all that um so that's essentially the the short history of ruby cool um, so it that takes this and then each of these characters then get the opportunity to bump into essentially early teen like like 13 14 15 16 year old versions of uh wonder woman and bruce wayne and um uh superman clark kent cool uh like ruby and yang come home from a school break to their father's farm and find out that the help that he has hired to help him is clark kent <laughs> <laughs> so uh and as long as so dust is like the the magical element that that they use to fuel all this stuff and he describes himself as as long as he is in the yellow sun of day, uh, he can basically do things that dust would allow people to do without having it. So, cool, right? Um, but yeah. So 
essentially we kind of get to meet these things and at, by the by the fourth one fourth chapter here um they are all back at beacon academy they're the only ones back there because we find out there's a, like a new form of the grim who are targeting and capturing um hunters with unique semblances which are you know abilities right uh, and one of them that they are after is um, like Ruby's part of Ruby's semblance is that she can move uh, for short bursts at super speed. That's how she attacks. Um, so they theorize that, well, if they're targeting her with her super speed, maybe if there's other people that have super speed. So obviously I, I, I'm leading this to believe that the next person they're going to go and try to protect is going to be, you know, Barry Allen. Right. That that would make sense, or right. or sure. or a young Wally West, yeah, something like that, yeah, yeah. sure, sure. Um, but yeah, but it's and it, because they're all early teens, right? Uh, you know, sixteen ish. Uh, you know, there's always that that constant change of romantic interest kind of thing, or mm-hmm. flirting, or that kind of thing. So there's some really cute moments where different people are flirting with different folks and all of that, yeah. So it's kind cool. of fun. Uh, one of the things I will mention is one of the continents is the the home of animuses, which are uh, animal human hybrids, essentially. Uh, Blake, who is one of the characters, is a uh, she's a faunus. Um, and we find out that uh, Bruce Wayne is a bat faunus. <laughs> <laughs> so he has like bat ears, and yeah, it's it's kind of that's kind of funny. I thought I like that. But yeah, this is just nothing but super candy fun. Cool. Yeah. Uh, did we did we name the creative team? I don't believe oh, I we did. I don't know that we did. Um. So uh, the writing is Marguerite Bennett, which so there you go. We you know it's going to be probably good or fun if Marguerite's writing it, uh, or both, our, or both. Right. Absolutely. Uh, the art is a Nenke. The colorist is Hi Fi, and the lettering is Gabriella Downey. Um. And it's it, the the art absolutely fits the uh the, the fun playfulness of the story yeah cool Love it. moving over to image we have shadecraft oh. number one written by joe henderson art by lee garbutt colors by antonio fabella and letters by simon boland this is the skyward team reuniting yes uh okay and that was already a gorgeous book but yeah. this has some next level art in it. I was just about to say, but my art pick of the week is absolutely this book. There are three pages in particular that are just insane. Yeah. Um. Yeah. One is uh, that 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 final page where she's hugging someone, mm-hmm. right? Uh. One is the one where she is in her brother's room and has turned on one of those like shadow uh mobile lights you know yeah. where it throws the shadows around the room and it's just like an upshot of her standing in that room like that and like i i don't i i didn't even know you could draw an art a, an art page <laughs> like that like holy crap that is just amazing I mean, and then uh the other one is i think it's early 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 in the book where uh, the first page where a shadow kind of manifests and comes at her. Yeah. Really any page <sighs> that is heavy on like shadows. Yes. Especially those pages are incredible. All of this is gorgeous. Like I think the shadow pages end up being so dynamic because of right. how much they play with 
just these inky black colors in yep. a book that is so focused on on portraying light and portraying lighting. Yes. Um we've we've talked before. I think JD and I waxed on a little bit uh last week or a week before even about how good Antonio Fabella is at coloring light. Yes. Um and like a lot of the shadows are Lee Garbett because the ink is going to be in in his art. But the two of them together are just like on some next level shit. They really are. They really I don't are. have any you better are. way to put that. Uh-uh. It's like it is actual sorcery is what it is. <laughs> like I, I think they perform some sort of magic to actually literally summon shadows and capture them on the page or something. I don't know. I mean there there are those books I read like you know, especially Marvel books. They come with the digital code. I'll read them on the sure. iPad just because it's it's more convenient. Uh, especially under normal times when I'm like trying to read between yes, you know, on a break at rehearsal or whatever. Yep. Um, and like I'll go back and I'll look at the print version of comics that have like really strong lighting, and it'll be like, okay, cool. This is this is mostly there on paper. Like I know I I didn't read this digitally. I read this printed on paper it still glows i don't know how you do that i don't know how you make ink glow <laughs> i have not looked at it in physical form yet but i will absolutely do that um yeah this is this is definitely this is my pick of the week i think just because it is so new and i, I you know what i don't even want to say it's completely different we've had stories kind of you know similar where shadows do things or where there's something that's coming after a character that nobody else believes is real and that kind I mean, of but in a very broad thematic way like this versus noctera these are both yeah. books about being afraid of the dark and right they do this in like dynamically opposite ways yes yeah but i part of it is absolutely this this lead character um she is absolutely fantastic Immediately, immediately just the most charming dork. Yep, exactly. Like, yeah, you can't help... Her name is uh, Zadie Lou, and you can't help but immediately fall in love with her. The The first page of this... It, it is the first page, right? I think so, yeah. She is talking to a friend. They're, yep. like, walking home after hanging out. And she asks, like, seriously, why are you walking me home? I appreciate it, but... Okay, okay, you caught me. I've got an ulterior motive. You do? Yeah, Zadie, I... And then she just, like, leaps into his face and kisses him. Yeah. And, like, there's this great panel where he just looks kind of startled while her mouth is eating his face. And then she pulls back, she's like, this wasn't the reason, was it? (laughs) And it's like, it's that kind of moment that, you know, only works with high schoolers who are, you know, dumb and impetuous in those ways. Yep. But it's like, Oh no, you are just so misreading these things and just slightly out of touch with everyone around you and and like in a way that is charming. Uh-huh. And then we learned that yeah, okay, her her classmates don't know how to deal with her anymore because her brother is in a coma and and not not just is her brother in a coma, he was like Mr. Popular at school. Like yes. Every like he was the guy at school. And now they and, just call him Coma Boy. And now they just call him Coma Boy because he got in a car there was a car accident and yeah. And so they really don't know how to treat her. Yeah. 
Yeah. And like she's got a couple of friends and now she's worried she's an alienated one of them. Like she's relieved when the mean girls at school pick on her because it's the most normal she gets to feel. Right. And she is kind of terrified of the dark and everything a little bit. Yeah. And just I do like her friends though. Her friends are good. Yeah. Like Especially given that she's just so immediately, oh my god, shadows are alive and hunting me. And they're like, what are you talking about? Maybe maybe you need to, to, to take a break. <laughs> yeah. Can you, did you like sleep? Because you're like summoned. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's a very fun book and so, so pretty. Uh, yeah. Like I said, so pretty. The, this is definitely my, my pick of the week right here. Beta Ray Bill number one. Written and drawn by Daniel Warren Johnson, with colors by Mike Spicer, and letters by Joe Sabino and Daniel Warren Johnson. It is not a very well-kept secret that I am a huge Beta Ray Bill fan, um, nor is it a very well-kept secret that I am always fond of Fin Fang Foom. So, of course, when a Beta Ray Bill fights Fin Fang Foom, at least in the first issue, series was announced. I, uh, I'm on that. I really dug... Daniel Warren Johnson's art in and writing in Wonder Woman Dead Earth, which did you read that, Brian? Uh yes. Yeah. Did I? Yes. I think yes. you did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So like this is about as no-brainer as they come. And there are some big fun over-the-top action sequence fights. Like about half this issue is just the fight between Bill and the rest of Asgard and Fin Fang Foom. And then Thor shows up and just hands Foom his ass. And that kind of gives us the the push for the rest of this series. Which is Bill trying to sort of find his place again. You know, in, in Thor, Thor has destroyed Stormbreaker. And sort of removed the the boon that Odin had granted bill and having thor come in and uh show him up in that way having the spell that like let him appear humanoid when he wasn't sort of in god mode mm -hmm. uh having that spell broken is causing problems for bill who like has sort of had a thing going with sif but now that now that he can't transform back into a more humanoid form like that's just not on the table. So it's a lot of him like trying to to I mean on the surface the immediate is well I'm gonna find Odin and get get back what you know what I once had, what has been lost. Something tells me that's not gonna be where this actually ends. Uh but like seeing Bill who I think normally gets treated as here's this big over the top goofy silver bronze supporting character who is one of the best Thor characters, hands down. Like, seeing him get the space to be introspective and get to be a fully developed character, that is not what I expected out of a five-issue Beta Ray Bill miniseries. Okay. But I am so here for it. And, like, it is it is gorgeous. Like, it is... Daniel Warren Johnson does not draw a bad book. Mike Spicer does not color a bad book. It looks fantastic. Um, like, very, very sort of, like, almost heavy metal, grungy style that you're used to from Johnson. Um, yeah, cannot recommend it enough. If you're on the fence about this, 
Absolutely go for it. Okay. Silk number one. Written by Maureen Gu. Art by Takshimi Ozawa. Colors by Ian Herring. Letters by Ariana Marr. I'm so glad to have Silk back. Me too. And can I say, like, I, 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 I think she is the, uh, I think she's the quippy spider person right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, these first three pages, I, or four or five pages, I just, they were <laughs> just perfect. Just yeah. The... Perfect. <laughs> as a matter of fact, we are going to, as a, as a quick summary of them, I'm certainly not going to read five pages worth of word balloons. They are my quote of the week. Brian's quote of the week. Five pages? <laughs> Essentially, there's two people breaking into this high-end fashion clothing store and and uh, uh, purse store, and they are um, they're trying to steal. And one of them is like, uh, one of them is very uncertain and is basically saying, you know, like, oh, no, it's too easy. We're going to get caught. And they're like, no, 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 no. And he's like, yeah, but last time Spider-Man, she's like, no, no, no. It's not like, are, are you ever going to let me forget it? And he's like, but I lost a thumb. <laughs> if like, i have to hear about that thumb one more time right and then of course silk comes in and she's like yeah you know you can't do this da, 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 da. and he's like damn it karen <laughs> karen is the other criminal and she's like i do not want to hear it right now carl wait are you guys married or something and then she looks at him and says carl don't make me chop off another thumb <laughs> that's not funny <laughs> yes it is it is absolutely funny because <laughs> she keeps calling him Carl. And he's like, stop using my name. <laughs> I like that. You weren't supposed to be a disappointment to your parents, Karen. Yes. I'm exactly. an orphan. <laughs> nice try. No, you're not. No, you're yes, not. I am. I killed my parents. Wow. She kicks her into a display. That's for your parents. <laughs> so good. It is so good. I, I love that. I love the vibe they're giving her right now. And yeah. yeah. Uh, and of course, she's still working for Jonah. She's still yes. being called analog in the workplace because, uh, well, she lived in a bunker so much of her life that she still is reading physical newspapers and getting shit for it. And yep. uh, ends up getting Jonah uh, in danger for publishing an article about a a series of murders that happened uh right. of gang members and now what is silk not not Cindy's job what is silk's job at the end of this book uh Jonah's bodyguard yes how good <laughs> is this going to be <laughs> that she has to play both sides of this absolutely wonderful yeah 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 i i am 100% down this is a perfect introduction um, it did not drag at all. Everything kept moving. There was no like long, just pages of character introduction or anything. It was this was really good. Yeah, X Men number nineteen, written by Jonathan Hickman, art by Mahmoud Azrar, colors by Sunny Go, letters by Clayton Cowles, design by Tom Moeller. This is the second part of our escaping the vault story. Yeah, mapping the vault, escaping the vault. Yeah, it's yeah. uh this is a this is a little bit brutal. This is Yeah, it's it's one of the one of the more I think constructed 
in, yeah. in that Hickman way. That's very fair, yeah. Constructed issues we've seen in a long time. Very effectively, uh, we get two, three, four pages at a time. Yep. Inner, you know, interspersed with... Like a timeline. A timeline that shows about, yeah, yeah, about, give or take, 50 years at a time. Um, We see, like, four of them, and they're in there for, like, 200 years. Yeah. Um, but the the last issue told us, you know, don't trust time. So who who knows? Yeah, and this one says something else about you know we know that time doesn't function the same way inside the vault, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but basically, this is a series of ways their mission has gone wrong, ways they cannot escape, and the ways that especially. Laura and Sink mm-hmm. sort of become closer over the course of this issue. The way about halfway through Darwin is captured. Um, and it becomes about how the two of them have to be there for each other and then want to be there for each other. Uh and ends with, of course, only one of them getting out. They all get rebooted. Yeah. Like the 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 beats of this the beats of this, despite being like this very carefully tightly constructed thing, are so much less important than the the character moments in it, which is I think like it plays that structure against that character development so so effectively in it does one issue it does there's and there's there's a couple of specific things that I like that are that are just little clever things right. Like there's one where they talk about how they essentially they they cut off a piece of one of their arms and leave it as a you know as a as proof that they were killed right yeah uh and then and and they talk about their mistake was in not understanding that they don't just they don't just take these and celebrate their victory you know and, and are satisfied with it they <laughs> they basically take their trophy and use it for other means primarily beating you to death with it. And yeah. it's it's literally you know the 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 arm and hand of one of them. So you know the idea of beating you to death with your own arm. Stop yeah. hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Exactly. I'm like, oh my god, that was that was really clever. And then there's a page where uh, it's essentially it's like four panels, but the bottom three are the same team of children, right? Uh-huh. Uh huh. And it shows their evolution as they go through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, each version of them, and and when was, we say children, cool. we mean the children of the vault. children of the vault. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And it's really cool because you can totally see it as a you know character redesigns, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, character updates that a that Marvel or DC would do. Well, and it's, that's it's so cool. that's so canny here too, because as opposed over... to canny. <laughs> Over the course of the, like, you know, centuries that this book right. takes, yep. we also see multiple redesigns of Darwin and Sink and Wolverine as they age. Yes. I mean, we basically get old woman Laura here, which means this has to have taken a very long time. Yeah. Um, so, like, seeing the ways they age and change and change how they interact with each other and try to survive and or escape versus how the, the children of the vault are adapting and changing. Like, that is, in and of itself, I think, a very intentional thing Hickman yeah. does here. Uh, yeah. Good good issue. 
Yep. And uh, maybe maybe by the end of this, there will be a new a new ship on Krakoa. Mm. What, what would you call a, a a a what would be the ship name for Sink and Laura Kenny? Hmm. Wow. Uh, Sink twenty three. I don't know. <laughs> It sounds like the name of a club, actually. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, no, I don't like that one. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Hey, if you have ideas, it's at Panelology Podcast on Twitter. Share them with us. Is it still good? Uh, we are going to start off by reminding folks of a pair of books we've actually already talked about. Yeah. Uh, first up is Witch Blood. Written by Matthew Ehrman, art by Lisa Stirl, colors by Gab Contreras, and letters by Jim Campbell. Brian, do you want to tackle this one? Uh, yeah, yeah. Like I said, I think it was uh, about three weeks ago we talked about this as a preview issue, and um, this is just a really, really good. Like, if you want an example of how to introduce a world and characters and start building, this is a fantastic example of the right way to do that. Yes. Um. Like I said, there's there is enough action and everything to keep you involved and to keep your interest with, but there's enough explanation for you to feel like you're really getting some footing in what's going on here. Um, and like all the characters are fun. Yep. The world is bright and fun. Yep. You get you know you get people that you your your villains that you kind of instantly hate. You get your main character that you mostly love but you're annoyed by maybe some of her characteristics or choices um it's disaster witch versus dirtbag vampires there you go uh and then you get the the kind of wild card person that's the the one that like you don't know if you're gonna love him or hate him at the end <laughs> right <laughs> in the bounty hunter yeah yeah so uh yeah just super super good we also had the first issue in print of Destiny New York this week. This is written by Pat Shand. Art is by Manuel Pretano. Letters are by Jim Campbell. Uh, this has been released digitally before. This is its first time in single issues. Uh, this is a book about sort of a world where prophecy is a normal part of life. And it focuses on... A a young woman who is still basically like high school, early college age, just about, who already fulfilled her prophecy. She was the chosen one for this one thing, and she did it. And she still kind of lives in this world. She goes to school at the school for, for chosen ones. But also, you know, lives apart from it because she's the one who's done it. She ends up meeting another character who she starts dating. It turns out that one of her friends has been uh, foretold to vanquish a great evil, who is, in fact, the new girl that the main character is dating. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's very, like, slice-of-life relationship. It feels, it feels more like, say, Sunstone than Harry Potter, in a way. Um... Not just being not being written by a transphobic jerk, but yeah, it's it's a really cool series. I've I've read the whole first volume of it because it's okay. already out digitally. Yeah, I think they're on like they're on like chapter twenty one or twenty. Yeah, there are there are three volumes out right, yeah. on Comicsology, so uh, it's definitely something that if you want if you want to to pick up a series you can commit to for a while that's not going to go away after five issues. 
Uh, it is definitely safe in that regard. It's also a lot of fun. I'll also say as someone who is not normally like good at reading comics that are in black and white. Uh-huh. Uh, this works really well. They didn't go back and color it for print or anything. It's still nope. yeah, a it's black and white comic black and, and white. it looks great. Um, yeah. yeah, which um, if you're not, if this sounds interesting to you, pick it up because this is a good example of uh, a black and white comic that I think is easily accessible. Because I, I do know that black and white comics turn some people off. Yeah, for, like, it's not that I mean, I say this as someone who, like, weirdly, it was through really good color work that I, I, I wanted to get into comics, right. seeing what sort of modern color work looked like. It's not that a comic being in black and white is inherently a turnoff for me. Nope. It's that I actually have trouble parsing sort of the visual language on page. Mm-hmm. When color isn't there, because not always, especially if I'm looking at something that's like, you know, a director's cut, an artist edition where it's meant to be color. Right. That is very, and and I guess that's kind of the point that I want to say. That's very, very different than what you get here. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a control of depth of field that if a book, if a book is meant to be colored, the colorist really takes responsibility for that. Mm Mm-hmm especially in contemporary comics making this because it was always designed to be black and white because the art is taking that into account. I don't have issue parsing that depth of field without there being color. Well, here's the thing. And we talk about this. I know we talked about it in like some of the early Aquaman runs uh, issue, you know, with uh, Stepan Chayek where there there's, especially in colored books, the art can do a lot of the storytelling, Mm -hmm. right? Generally, with black and white, you don't get that nearly as as much, because the art is used very specifically to convey, like, the situation for context of what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you get this; you can see this very clearly if you look at like a you know a newspaper or comic strip that comes out, right? Yeah. Where if you look at the art in that, the only the, the, the purpose of the art in that is to show you the situation that they're in so that you understand what the words are. Right. Right. And this is that same thing. They're not trying to tell the story. They're giving you the understanding of what the of what the words are relating to. Sure. Yeah. So anyway, and my point being, I guess, overall, they just kind of serve a different purpose if they're colored or not colored. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. Yeah. Um and obviously like every book is different. Every book has different priorities in these ways. So we're making some broad statements. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um but all that is to say like this is a really solid book and Manuel Pretano's art is <laughs> really good here. Yeah. Yeah. Um if you want to know more about it, we did a whole hour long interview with Pat Shand a couple of weeks ago. So check that out. All right. Nuclear Family, number two, Brian. Uh, yeah, this is uh, Stephanie Phillips writing, Tony Shastine art, uh, J.D. Medler coloring, Troy Pateri letterer. Uh, you know, it's uh, now that we kind of know what happened to this family, um, they're not in a great position. Um, 
you know, essentially, this is uh, this is just part of the story. I don't consider it really spoilers. You know, when the bombs dropped and they were in the basement of their house, essentially their house got pushed forward in time like 20 years instantly. <laughs> cool. No clue how. Like, there's no explanation yet. But, like, so when these soldiers show up and are like, well, who the hell are you? And are thinking that they're, you know, communist infiltrators because, you know, this is very much a Cold War kind of mentality thing uh you know they find like coffee and rice krispies and like all of these <laughs> things that they're like nobody has seen this stuff in 15 years now or whatever so like they're amazed by it but like the uh the one of the people that's there turns out to be somebody that he knew and but like so i'm not sure that it's just time it may also be like a dimensional kind of shift Okay. Some sort. But yeah, we find out they are in a very, very different place than where they were. And that's essentially what this issue is for, is to let us know that. Uh we don't have any expectation of what that means yet. But it's kinda cool because like there's no uh like there's no indication of like superpowers or magical powers or anything else going on here it's just this regular family and this super weird thing has happened cool yeah batman catwoman number four brian um i remind you we are in is it still good yeah i know i know I, that, that one <laughs> yes that one in particular i felt like i needed just a little no extra. that's fair it's 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 been a couple of weeks since it, you've been here it this... has it has um Helena is trying to get to the truth of what's going on between her, or, or did go on between her mother and Joker. Strange Adventures number nine. As the Justice League releases its Mueller report, uh, the war with the Picts rages on and uh, may have claimed Batman. The next Batman, Second Son, Chapter 6. Batwing's attempt to get the antidote for his sister's poisoning from the rat catcher goes poorly when the GCPD shows up. All right, uh, crossover. Um, Ellie learns Kung Fu from a sword, and um, the solution to Ava, uh, one of our characters has a solution for Ava, which that solution may be uh, number one with a bullet. Don't tell that to Annie Oakley. Department of Truth, number seven. This is another interlude issue with Tyler Boss joining on art uh, and Roman Titov on colors. This is the secret history of the Men in Black. King in Black, Return of the Valkyries, number four. Uh, the Valkyries all unite to fight a dead celestial and depower the Necrosword. U.S. Agent number four, uh, the most punchable face in the Marvel Universe, learns that, well, maybe his sister has turned rogue and has nefarious plans in mind, and also his tag-along for this mission might have trained his replacement accidentally. Oh, and is that a dragon? Since she goes some places. Okay. The Union number four introduces the single most important character in uh, at least UK comics history, Charlie the Cybernetic Corgi, 
who is unfortunately evil. Aww. Even when he's bad, he's still a good, good boy. Aww. Uh, finally, Shadow Service number six. We learn the origin of Wraith One as MI666 pursues Gina, who is still on the run with her former target turned accomplice. This week's books. Uh, we have made it now through the first month of Infinite Frontier, which means much shorter lists of Infinite Frontier number ones. Yes. Uh, with two titles this week. First is Green Lantern number one, written by Jeffrey Thorne, art by Dexter Soy and Marco Santucci, colors by Alex Sinclair, and letters by Rob Lee. Uh, we've talked about this one before. This is going to focus on Jon Stewart and Kelly Quintella, and I believe starting in number two, Joe Mullane as well. Uh, looking forward to seeing what's going on with the Green Lanterns in Infinite Frontier, because a lot of what we saw in Future State implied some big changes for things like the Red Lanterns and the Yellow Lanterns and the Red the Lantern. Green Lantern Corps. Yeah, huh? all, 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 basically the entire spectrum yeah. of Lanterns. Yeah, pretty much. We also have the print release of the next Batman Second Son. Uh, Brian, you're going to pick up this one now that it's out in print, yeah? Yeah, yes, I cool. absolutely am. Yeah, that's so what we'll, I've been waiting for. We'll talk a little bit more about this than we have been next week. Uh, this is written by John Ridley. Pencils are by Tony Akins and Travel Foreman. Breakdowns are by Ryan Benjamin and Marco Faya. Inks are by Mark Morales, with colors by Rex Locus, and letters by Darren Bennett. Uh... Outside of DC, we see the release of The Silver Coin number one next week. This is the horror anthology series drawn by Michael Walsh with a rotating cast of writers coming in for each issue. Uh, the first issue will be written by one Chips Darsky. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to have to end up probably picking this up. Yeah, yeah, yeah you are. Yeah, uh, yeah. What this, what this reminds me of is um, uh, kind of like an ice cream man, but with each issue being potentially a different, right? Like, it, yeah. It, where where you get they're going to get these different stories, and we have really seen a huge resurgence. I would say in the last four to six months of these anthology type books. I think. Yeah, I I think you can point to like Ice Cream Man. I think you can yeah. point to Razor Blades. Okay. Yeah. James Tynan's anthology sort of magazine. Right. Uh the third issue of that I think recently came out digitally. I'm still waiting on my physical copy. Those tend to. Those tend to print and ship a little later. Yeah. Uh, that's just the world right now. Uh, but yeah, like, I, I've said before, I think horror works so well in anthology form in comics. Yeah. Well, and like right now, we've also got uh, Black Hammer Visions, right? Yeah. Where we've got that rotating cast, which is a little different. You know, we've had like, I guess, the Batman Black and White and the uh, Wolverine black red you know black white and red or yeah. blood or whatever but but where, even, where it's multiple stories in an issue right even even to that though yeah. like batman urban legends yeah. a title i always have to stop and think, think to, of, to piece yeah. together right batman urban legends is an incontinuity Yes. anthology series which yeah. is it's not the first time dc's done it but i think it's probably the most high profile one they've done 
certainly in a while. Uh, certainly in the last decade. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm just kind of excited. I, I just think it's cool. I, I, I like that we're getting these because I think I think it keeps it keeps uh, uh, series fresh. Mm -hmm. I think it's cool to let different artists have takes on, you know, on characters and on uh, IPs, right? Yeah. So, anyway. well, and even, even, and then we'll we'll move on. But yeah. even the degree to which DC is relying right now on backups, yeah, is I think in this same vein, really putting a focus on packaged sets of stories rather yeah. than one book, one story yeah uh a little bit of of just extra context on silver coin uh the the stories set in this book are all going to be set in one persistent world where like characters from one story may appear as supporting characters in others right um and from what i've read this is all kind of centered around maybe and th this is this is sort of like tying back to that ice cream man well this is all domestic horror yeah. This is all sort of the the horror inflicted by money. Yep. Yeah, I I I am fully expecting that there is a coin that travels from issue to issue that is the through line that, you know, oh, whoever has this coin that's yeah. the story we're seeing, right? Yeah. Um then Brian, you also have brought Noctera number two to the list. I did, and I brought Noctera. I know it's a number two, which is kind of odd, but like this Number one was so damn good that I just want to make sure that people know how good it is and that you should definitely pick up number two. Yeah. yeah. And of course, that's written by Scott Snyder, drawn by Tony S. Daniel, colored by Termeo More, and lettered by Darren Bennett. Yeah. That's it. Yep. Anything else before we wrap it up, Brian? I don't think so. I think that's it. In that case, we would like to thank Chase Parker for our intro voiceover. Panelology is a member of the Certain POV Network. If you're looking for other cool podcasts about popular culture, go to CertainPOV.com. You can visit us at PanelologyPodcast.com, support us at Patreon.com slash Panelology, get merch at Bit.ly slash PanelologyMerch, capital P, capital M, or send us questions, comments, or whatever at bit.ly slash panelology mailbag, capital P, capital M. I'm Alex. And I am Brian. Go read comics. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.